0: Okay, hello everyone. Thank you so much for coming to our last seminar of the term. Um, Our speaker today is Dr. Stephen Winter, and Stephen completed his PhD here at the University of Oxford in 2006, and he's now a senior lecturer in political theory at the University of Auckland. And a lot of his research has focused on questions of state wrongdoing and redress, and he's also the author of... The book *Traditional Justice in Established Democracies*. Oh yes, the book. book. Yeah. <laughs> he was it's very book. cheap. Ooh. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. which was published in 2014 by Palgrave Macmillan. So please join me today in welcoming Stephen to Oxford again. <laughs> yes, it's good to be exactly. back. It's really strange, actually, because you know I lived here. I called this place my home, but. Um, Coming back eight years later, I sort of wander around and it doesn't feel like home, it doesn't feel like a homecoming at all, it feels more like a, yeah, being a visitor in a town that one used to call home is a weird feeling. Maybe it was the wrong time of the year. Yeah, no, that all seems very familiar, the grayness, the darkness, the cold, it all all seems very familiar. All right. So yeah. So this is a paper um, we've finally decided to titled yeah, "Theorizing the Political Apology," and it's um, now out with the Journal of Political Philosophy on its early view thing. Though the paper will be um, dated 2015. It's available now. So if you want to read along, you know, you can download it on your iPads and we'll go. Um, and yeah, the book. Yeah, as Vincent asked, the book builds on some of the conceptual work and sort of models that have been. ...that are in, a, in that Transitional Justice book that I published. So it's very much sort of an applied way of dealing with this. So I'm going to go through this argument about political apologies... Sorry. ...sort of once over lightly... ...but you're welcome to give me a good push in the, in the discussion section. That's not to say I'm going to change the paper... ...because, hey, the paper's published. But odds are we'll all write something else in the future. You know. So, okay. So what does the paper do? It offers an account of the political apology... Um, so, what do I mean by political apologies here is fairly specific. Um, so, some examples might help us. So, one would be, say, the congressional apologies for slavery in 2008 2009, or the Australian apology st- oh, for the stolen generations in 2008. The uh, New Zealand apologies that uh, come out of the Treaty of Waitangi process on a fairly regular basis. Um, but today, I'm going to talk, when I need an example, I'm going to refer to the uh, 2008 Canadian Apology for Residential Schools. Okay? So that'll be my sort of touchstone as I go along, but I won't say very much about this. This is far from a case study. That'll just be an example I use periodically. So what I do and what the paper wants to do is offer an account. What, what, what are some of the conditions that make a political apology? And, you know, what, what are some of the conditions that make such an act such a thing? And if um, you look around the literature, I suggest that there are at least three different approaches the individual, the collective, and what we call the institutional. And so what we'll do in the paper is we'll walk through first a a very minimal account of some of the necessary conditions of an apology. And then we're going to take that minimal account and we're going to apply it to the individualist approach, the collectivist approach, and the institutionalist approach. And I'm going to show some of the advantages and disadvantages each one of these approaches has when giving an account of this practice of political apologies. I'm going to plump for the institution. This is a fighting taxonomy, so I'm going to fight for the institutionalist at the end, that's why it's number three. Right? But, you um, know, there are, there are advantages to the others as well. Okay? And um, so we'll finish it'll be about a 30-minute paper, it might be a little shorter than that, so there'll be plenty of time for questions. Okay? So, some further preliminaries. The paper concerns what we'll call categorical responsibilities for wrongdoing. That's not to say that we can use apologetic languages for other things, you know, if you know, you might say, hey, I'm sorry for you know, a- inadvertently stepping on your toes. We call it an apologetic act, but that's not what I'm concerned with, right? We're concerned with cases of wrongdoing. Moreover, I'm going to be concerned with cases of where the apology is offered in an official capacity, right, so you know, usually by a, a representative of the state, prime ministers, presidents, ministers, and so on. And we see the difference with this, say, coming out of the Japanese case where, um, you know, the prime minister there has often offered, uh, prime ministers there have offered private regrets for um, sexual slavery, but you know, and the criticism of that is that you know, you know, they don't offer the apology as a uh, when it's happened, not as a, not as a, a Quay Prime Minister. So I'm looking for that, for that official apology. Okay. Moreover, some other features that we'll need to go forward with is the idea that the, this is very common. That the the apologetic act is a is a performative, right? And so people writing in this area, often located in the John, Jill Austin, um. Tradition of speech acts, apologies do something, but what they do, of course, is not simple. When Austin takes up the question of what an apology does, it gets quite complicated quite quickly. So, it's, you know, there's really quite diverse elements, and the fact that they're used in different contexts to realize different values is part of the explanations to why there's a fair amount of diversity in the literature as to what these things are. So, my minimal account will focus on. Necessary conditions, or if you really feel like saying fancy words, you could call them existential conditions, but we'll just say necessary conditions. And I want to distinguish them from qualitative conditions. Okay? I think some of the literature out there, won't name names, um, mixes these things together, and um, I don't think that it, that lends us towards uh, to clarity. When we're offering apologies in these contexts, we're trying to remedy wrongdoing. So, the form comes out of the language I use there. We offer apologies, we convey apologies, we give apologies, we receive them, right we accept them The, the form is a transaction, and that transactional element is come again' it's fairly common in the literature. Not, not inventing anything there. Michael Maris, for example, is a guy who emphasizes that transactional character, and so does, and so does Austin and it stipulates the fact that. These things are not, these are sort of these are public acts, they need to conform to certain kinds of, you know, um, recognized social uh, conventions. That's not to say, of course, we're going to agree all the way down, but when I apologize and I do something, you know, outside the sort of standards, um, you know, the, that, that open me, me up for criticism. Okay. So that's, so there's enough to sort of get us in the range, uh, sort of what it is we're talking about. And I'm going to sort of drill down a little bit further before we move on to our different um, accounts. So in an apologetic act, I think we're going to find um, most, the, the core cases are going to compo- be composed of uh, at least three necessary conditions. First, there'll be a constative statement, so we'll use a little bit of Austinian language, but I'll we'll explain it as we go along here, that wrongdoing occurred, so a statement that, that something happened, and that there was, a wrong, there was an act, that wrongdoing occurred, and the judgment that the act was wrong. Okay? So that, we'll call that the verdictive element of the apology. The second condition is that the apology reflexively attributes blameworthiness or culpability to the party that's apologizing. And the third, there's this participatory character that arises from the transactional account of it. Um, Then we need to have the participant Participant will be in the court cases the offender and the person whom or the agent that, that is injured. So an apology must come from a party that assumes standing to apologize and be conveyed to a party that claims standing to accept. I think those are all fairly standard elements of a core, what we call a core case, though there's a great deal of debate and argument in literature as to who gets to stand in these positions and whether or not people are, this, this act is wrong or whether or not the agent in question is blameworthy. All those things, of course, are up to, for significant debate, right? but those core elements, I think, are fairly standard. So we will look at, in a minute or two, like 10 minutes or so, we'll come to a, a case where that, that participatory area look, comes under some pressure. Okay? So, when we take those, that sort of, we'll call that minimal account, and we'll apply it to the three different approaches, the individualist, the collectivist, and the institutionalist. And we'll start with the individual. So, the individualist account requires the apology's three necessary conditions to be satisfied as follows. The constant of account, of the apology is a wrongful act that's committed by an individual or individuals, who attributes moral responsibility for that wrongdoing to him or herself, right? So, the individuals are the cultivable agents, and individuals participate, though, sometimes via proxies in the the political apology. So, there's some examples of people like this. um, Probably the best one is Nick Smith. You've read Nick, so those people who. If you're not, that's okay. If you want to read uh, somebody who's an individualist in this approach, Nick Smith's your way to go. Uh, He's written a a book and a a number of articles on this stuff. Another really good example is um, John Bond's favorite guy. Uh, Michael, uh, Michael Howard. John Howard. Right? John Howard has an individualist conception of this stuff. And this individualist conception really does come from apologies critics. When I give this paper in Australia, you know I say John Howard and sort of boos come out of the audience. It's not the most popular Prime Minister. Though who knows? It's possible that John Howard's becoming a better Prime Minister after he left office. Well, only by virtue of those who's replaced him. Oh come on, that was funny. <laughs> 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 All right. So, um, so you know, so the people like John Howard use this um, individual's account often to critique the possibility of a political apology. So, in response, its advocates go for lots of different responsibility-attributing stratagems, and these may include, uh, for example, wrongfully benefit. So, individuals might wrongfully benefit from uh, wrongdoing, or they might endorse the wrongdoing, or they might endorse the principles upon which the wrongdoing. Was um, occurred, practices which justified it, such as, say, discriminatory attitudes or assimilated principles or wrongfully failing to avert injuries. So these are all, really interesting areas of moral and political discussion, and arguments in these areas have, I think, helped expose the complexity of our political moral space. So, but I do think the fact that these are so, shall we say, that, that you're trying so hard in this area, as it were, um, is indicative. Another, another really, I think, a really interesting benefit from the individualist approach is it resonates with the um, bottom-up conceptions of reconciliation that have become really quite prominent in the, in the field. So the idea that, you know, if we're going to have reconciliation, it's going to occur between individuals, right? It's going to be, you know, individuals, like take Canadian example, individual Canadians reconciling with each other over the practices of the residential schools. And that's, what's gonna, that's what reconciliation will mean. So the apology will play a role in that insofar as it can be seen as me apologizing to in a, an indigenous person or something like that. Right? So it resonates with that bottom-up conception. But I do think that John Howard actually probably got a hold of a pretty good stick, that, that, that the real problem for this individualist approach is that problem of responsibility. And then it's not just Howard, who goes about saying this stuff, and Hannah Arendt also You know, the culpability is really only appropriate if and only if the blame party commits an offence. And in most cases, the political apology, most citizens will not have performed the acts for which the apology responds, to which the apology responds. If we go and look at the broad range of political apologies, we'll find that they focus on acts of state, not the individual's endorsing of principles and that kind of stuff, or wrongfully benefiting from and so on. So if we look at the Canadian, the 2008 Canadian example... It focuses on forcible removal, the abuse that occurred within the residential schools, and the, uh, their assimilative function. That's, those are acts of states, in, insofar as they're acts of individuals. They're not acts of individuals qua citizens, they're acts of particular discrete individuals. So there's a big gap between the example's of apologetic content and what the individual account will support. Now, I suppose you might say, well, so much the so worse for the example, which I think is a perfectly coherent position to hold. Right? You might just simply say, well, that's the standard for an apology. The fact that the practice doesn't meet those standards is a problem for the practice. We should change our practices. That's a perfectly coherent place, thing to hold. So, But if, if that's true, then, of course, nearly every actual apology, at least all the ones I'm familiar with, is going to overstep its mark. Then the account is a theory of, a, of a, a practice that has yet to emerge. So I think there's another... Yeah, we'll have time for this. Another really interesting element of this. So when people talk about political apologies, often one of the things they focus on um, and so this comes out of if you if you happen to have read the uh, Truth and Reconciliations Interim report, Commission in Canada's interim report, it's okay if you haven't. Um, you know they'll focus on the, the the role of the apology in educating Canadians about the wrongdoing, right? So this is a, it has this pedagogic function, and that's one of the things that's valuable: is it acknowledges and publicizes and you know what happened, the history here, and, and it inscribes it into the the passage of time, right, into the, the Canadian history. But if the apology is to teach Canadians to be responsible, well then that function puts the cart before the horse. The apology requires acknowledgement, it does not anticipate it. So I think all these kinds of problems are symptoms of deeper problems. the Plausible account, the, as an account in itself, the individual account fails to grasp the, how the political domain is, a realm of, of activity that's quite distinct from the individual ethical domain. which involves different kinds of actions and we should judge them by different standards. So let's put the individual aside for a moment and turn to the collectivist account. Now, I think the collectivist account is probably the leading account in the literature right now. People talk about groups apologizing to other groups. And um, so in the political apology is understood as a collective action... Then the sort, of, you know, sort of area that became quite interesting for philosophers at least about 10 20 years ago and, and, and probably still is interesting. So like when they say things like you know, predicate the team won the game, you, you don't say, you're not saying that collection of discrete individuals won the game, you're talking about a collective agent that's irreducible. The winning of the game is something that's irreducible to the individuals in question. At least that's how the argument goes, right? So a prominent strand in the literature goes, well, you can attribute apologies, predicate them to the groups in question. And most commonly, the groups that are, uh, come out are nations or ethnocultural groups and those kind of things. So I'll just talk about nations simply because I, that'll be the most prominent strand. And if you're familiar with the literature, people like um, Daniel Salamayor and to a lesser extent, Melissa Noble, Though so she doesn't offer an account of what apologies are. She's offering a more of a causal account. Um, so that um, and Nicholas Tavocet's. Though I'm not pretty sure if I'm saying his name correctly, he's uh, another sort of uh, strong player. T a v u c h i s. So I'm saying votes, but I could easily be wrong. So he wrote um, a book on Apologies and um, wrote about uh, 15 years ago now. Okay. Now, um, so for these pe- for this kind of group, the a political apology is understood as a means of making or marking changes to membership. And indeed, I may have written something like this in the past myself. <laughs> right. so, so I'm, not, uh, I'm in a glass house if I'm throwing stones. Right. Now for the collectivists, the apology reaffirms the national identity by repudiating the wrongful act and recommitting the nation to its constitutive values, making that repudiation a matter of public record. So, in the process, the political apology will shift the imagined boundaries of the nation, make identification possible for previously marginalized and excluded groups. In settler nations like Canada, that nation-building approach to the political apology often locates apologies to indigenous peoples as an aspect of post-colonial politics. It's a way of making the increase, you know, expanding the ambit of nat- nationality to include previous excluded groups such as marginalized groups such as the Indigenous peoples. So let's set out what the collectivist account would require with respect to our, our, our three conditions. We look at the, the verdictive, the, the account specifies that con- constant content of the apology is wrongdoing that pertains to national identity, either by causing it to exclude or by inscribing exclusion to history or some sort of exclusive process, Reco- you know, creating barriers to stop inclusion, whatever that is. In terms of responsibility attribution, the blame where the agent, the the nation itself, which may act through its political representatives. So people like David Miller might, you know, see the nation as something distinct from its political aid, the political expression of the nation. The, the political institutions are kind of like tools that the nation uses to act, same way I might use a screwdriver in order to uh, fix my house. Okay, and then um, so that, so that's how they how that action that's the agent in question. And that's the nation, nation itself that is acknowledged as being blameworthy. And the participant is the offending nation, which may act through its representatives, and the survivors who participate directly or perhaps through some mediated process of representation. So interestingly, I think the collectivist account has real advantage of being accommodating of individual differences. So if you think that national membership is a question of what some of the facts might apply, right, like the fact that I'm a Canadian is true whether or not I think I'm a Canadian, right, I'm not going to just be a power of mind alone stopping a Canadian, right, so I might disagree with you, right, but there may be certain facts that apply to national membership, so maybe the case that the political apology can extend the boundaries of membership despite the fact that people don't recognize it as having done so, right, it will just be a fact of the matter, right, That, that the political apology creates or reflects, Right? So the political party might make something of national identity by changing some of the relevant facts. So I think that's a real advantage of the collectivist approach. And I think there's a second real advantage to the membership approach, in that national membership is often thought to uh, to in- in- entail a certain kind of standing. Right? So nation- nationals can demand appropriate treatment on the basis of being a fellow member, associative obligations. Right? And that, that pressure to demand appropriate treatment, I think we see come out in criticisms of the apologies that occur that they, you know they, you have the apology, but it 's empty because we didn 't get the follow up that we wanted right or that we, that we 'd have reason to expect right so the, the uh you know, there's that, that real pressure that the apology would be empty unless it's backed up by cognate concrete actions, right? So you get this language all the time that you know the apology would be words only unless there's compensation, or the apology would be empty unless there's a uh, you know redistributive justice, right? Th- those kinds of claims can be managed quite easily by the collectivist account because it, you can think of membership as having uh, as entailing certain associative obligations. So I think that's a real there's another that's another real advantage of the collectivist account. But if we look at turn now to criticism. I think it's really unclear whether the remedy of wrongful exclusion is the only way in which political apologies operate. We find political apologies being demanded by and provided to groups that are unquestioned and unquestioning members of the nation in question. A good example is the 2006 apologies to Australia Vietnam veterans. These, These people are not excluded from the nation. And wrongful exclusion is not the focus of the Canadian apology. The concept of concerns of that apology concerns forcible trial, child removals and assimilation. You might think of these as wrongful practices of inclusion, not exclusion. Now, an advocate might turn around and try to argue, well, look, the relevant they is created by the wrongdoing itself, right? So the fact that I've wronged you has sort of pushed you out, right? Pushed you beyond the, the pale, or you know, turned it around and it pushed the wrongdoer beyond the pale or something. That was sort of Hegelian. So the relevant they are the offender. Wrongdoing demarcates the relevant group identity. But if that's the case, well then the poli- the, ar- the argument's just going to devolve back into an individualist account. And there's as many aggregates as there are wrongdoers. If responsibility is to uh, to assign responsibility, or sorry, if nationality is going to do the work of assigning responsibility, then responsibility can't do the work of defining nationality. You just, you can't do, you know, it's not going to work. You have the independent third. So now mine's not the first... I'm not the first person to note this problem. Um, Glenn Pettigrove is an example of somebody who has, as well. Uh, and so one way in which a collectivist might try to finesse the problem is to discard the requirement that apologies are transactional. So noted, we're going to come to this here. So people like Tevotius argue that the raison d'etre of the collective apology is the production of the record, right? That we inscribe it into history that this wrongdoing occurred. So that reduced account limits the necessary conditions of the apology to the predictive and the attributive. The apology would simply affirm in this case changes to the national me- membership or that the membership's open to change or something like that now I've, in the paper, I run through a series of arguments all designed to produce this this conclusion, which is it just seems wrong to me <laughs> That's, an apology's got to have this transactional character. affirmation is not an apology to say that this is, this has happened is not an apology when you, you know you can, you can say this has happened you know it 's not like you know you you can recognize these things, you can build museums, you can build monuments, but the apology itself is a different act. It's a distinctive act. So I think the stripped-down version, we can come back to some of the supporting arguments for that, if you wish. I think the stripped-down version is an unattractive position, and the fact of its unattractiveness reflects the architectonic transactional character of the apology. Now let's turn to our institutional account. This is our third and last approach, and it takes the institutional character of modern politics seriously. Now, in these institutional accounts, they represent state wrongdoing as undercutting the legitimacy of political institutions, where political legitimacy is the basis for the citizen's endorsement of a political institution as authoritative. Now, in the standard theory of the state, political institutions create law that's reason-giving. That's what it is for the the political authority to be, um, for an institution to be authoritative. So it's very much Joseph Raz. I feel like I'm channeling Raz in this room here. So discharging that responsibility provides uh, political institutions with the, the responsibilities that it has with respect to a theory of legitimacy uh, serves the reasons that it has that supports its authority. So in, in essence, the argument then for the apologies goes like this. If political institutions possess political authority when they serve legitimating reasons, and political authorized wrongdoing constitutes an institutional failing to serve such reasons, then that failure undercuts the institution's legitimacy and, arguably, their, their, its authority. As Jeff Spinner-Halev argues, injustice matters because it calls the authority of the liberal state into question. So in this account, legitimacy provides us a way of understanding how states are morally responsible agents. And a political institution would be more legitimate just insofar as it satisfies obligations that it owes to the citizenry. And agents can owe apologies to those whom they wrong, call those remedial obligations. And then states are more legitimate when they discharge their obligations to citizens and the demand for an apology is such an obligation the argument sort of flows fairly easily. The institutional approach also, I think, provides a, a good account of participation. Why it's really important for political apologies to be transaction, transaction in the public forum. Why they're accompanied by pomp and circumstance. The, uh, why they need to be done on the floors of... Um, I mean, there, these are not qualitative conditions, okay? Right, qualitative. Why, they, why they're done on the floors of parliaments and legislatures and so on. And so, Because why? Because what well, we're dealing with Acts that corrode the political institutions themselves, their legitimacy. So the recognition of the survivors as, as citizens in, and, and you know, as as having rightful claims in the states are important. So we move now to our that there are three necessary conditions. Let's summarize very quickly and then we'll move to some short explorations. In our account, the institutional account, culpability is attributed to the political institution or the assemblage of institutions that compose the state. The participants in the the wrongdoings are wrongful acts of state acts that are composed by um, wrongful laws, wrongful regulations, wrongful policies. And then the participants in the apologies are institutional representatives, representatives of political institutions, and they tender apologies to survivors or their representatives. We've got a bit of time. So let's this pers- so that, that brings us to the end of the taxonomic character of the argument. Why don't we pick up a couple of dif- yeah, we'll pick up a couple of interesting potential criticisms here, okay, of of that institutional approach, and then we'll conclude. So let's take a first one. The um, this one challenges the apologetic comp- the capacity of the state by saying that this political institutions aren't personal agents. They don't feel emotions. They don't get, They can't be sincere. They don't have that effective character, right? Now, in, when we talk about apologies and interpersonal ethics, the effective character of the agents and, or the effective disposition of the agents in question is, is really important to how we understand the apology. It right? goes so far such that some people will argue that the, the of the, the, the expression of remorse or something like that makes the apology The apology, a necessary condition of the apology, right? And if you think that's the case... Right? So if you want to expand from three to four in necessary condition, it's going to look tricky for our, our, political, um, our political apologies. Moreover, if we look at, say, the actual practice of political apologies, the expression of sincerity and remorse in those uh, acts by those are, who's de- who are delivering them, it seems to be really important to the way in which they're received. So a kind guy of like Richard Vernon are, observes... That you know, when we get paradigmatic cases of political apologies, like so the Australian one in uh, two thousand eight, right? Stolen generations is a good example. We'll stay with Canada, uh, also in the residential schools. Quote: Much is done to convey the appearance of uh, a sincerity. End quote. And then Richard notes that these appearances are really important to their reception. And so a lot of people argue: Well, the point of these effective displays is to record that political commitment, right? To really inscribe it in there, really deeply into the uh, into the tablet. And then, so if we say, well, that's, but that's really quite different from the, the, the role of effective dispositions in interpersonal apologies, where it's really designed to show that the, the individuals in question have a certain kind of feeling and regret and remorse. right? Like The, the, the display is supposed to reveal the inner private character. Right? So the fact that we don't have that means that the political and the, and the personal are really quite different kinds of things. So fundamentally different that there's, quote, no real connection at all between personal and political apologies for Vernon. But I think that we can save that connection if we just drop that remorse thing as a necessary condition of having an apology, and to treat questions of remorse and sincerity as, uh, as qualitative conditions. So we may have all had the experience of having, I don't know, maybe some of you are a little younger than me, we all have had the experience of having somebody offer you an apology, but you really don't think they mean it, right? You know, They, just, they don't care about you, whatever, right? Now, you might say that they haven't apologized, but I think the more natural thing to say is that they have apologized. They've just done a really bad job of it. They failed. It's a bad apology. It's still an apology. It's saying, yes, he apologized to me, but he didn't mean it. So um, it's a bad apology that we should treat this as a qualitative condition. And if qualitative conditions will differ in different contexts from the interpersonal to the political, we might think the sincerity condition should be treated differently at the political level than it is at the individual level. I think the sincerity condition should be treated the same way we treat, you know, we expect, you know, gravity of judges during sentencing or the solemnity of priests during the Eucharist. You know, it's a deme- demeanor that's conventionally accepted as promote- appropriate to the context, not a not a condition of having satisfied it. You can sentence somebody in a, in a court quite happily, <laughs> gleefully, right? You'd still perform it. It's just not it's just not the done thing. I think sincerity during a public apologies is also not the done thing. I'll finish with an anecdote. The uh. is on that subject. So, those of you, some people here may know that John Key is the Prime Minister of New Zealand, okay? And that, um, this is a couple of years ago, he was being interviewed, and um, two important things had happened that day in New Zealand politics. One, there'd been a big donation of fancy art to the Auckland Art Gallery, so there's some Pizarros, Picasso's, the size of these, you know, it was a it's a big deal in New Zealand, okay, right, right, and John Key's on the, it's, it's, it's such a happy day for New Zealand, it's such a wonderful day for New Zealand, you know, it's, you know, it's just munificence and now we've got this great things, and then the next question was, well, what, how do you, what do you want to say to the families of the firefighters who just died in Tauranga? He immediately turns, flips, it's a sad day for New Zealand, you know, it's, our hearts go out for them, we're all with them, and he's doing exactly what, a, you know, he's manifesting the appropriate emotions, the you know, emotions that were appropriate for the conditions in question. That. It, you might call him false as a person, but that's not the point. He's not supposed to be true. He's supposed to be playing a role in political institutions in the, pro- the, in the process of uh, delivering a political apology if you treat the representatives of the state as playing a role, that of representing the state. So with that, I'll finish.